to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. So this month's Patreon shoutouts goes to Jules and Strictly Homicide for joining the collective, as well as a thanks to our other devotees that are sticking around we have bonnie lee Landshark, murderific and obscura a true crime podcast thanks so much guys for contributing to keeping the podcast going and getting a bunch of extra content so if you want to be part of the collective i guess quote unquote officially and get extra episodes check out the patreon like these fine devotees Welcome back, devotees. We're back with Nikki T of Strictly Homicide to hear a non-Arkansas case. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> I have decided not to cover Arkansas on this one, so we're not going to talk about it at all. <laughs> <laughs> we had some interesting reviews about the last one. I don't hate this state. Which was just rude. I just want to say I don't hate this state. It's a true crime podcast, so I talk about things that suck. <laughs> I know, people don't realize, you eventually just de- develop a gallows humor, which I've been developing for most of my life, <laughs> as someone who's worked in customer service, mm-hmm. and, you know, just the things I've researched, you get a very dark sense of humor. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I already had one, so <laughs> it got worse. <laughs> so what is the case you're going to be discussing today? Today's case is Rex Krebs. This case actually took place 2,300 miles west of Arkansas in my home state of California. I've been there once. (laughs) Not everyone knows that I'm not a native of Arkansas. I guess they just assume I am, but I am not. I um, have lived here for 11 years, but I raised my family here. So it is home. I grew up in San Luis Obispo County in a place called Pismo Beach. It ha- It's best known in Clueless. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I love Clueless. And um, a Bugs Bunny episode. He went uh, digging for clams in Pismo Beach because that was like the big thing to do. I don't think you're allowed to anymore or people just don't want to. I don't know. They stopped doing it. So uh, <laughs> they probably um overclaimed probably to keep the population because it was big. I remember doing it as a kid. It was weird. Yeah, don't you just stick a thing in the <laughs> ground and you like you figure out where they are and you go whoop, right over them. You're like, hey, I got a clam. Yeah, you have to look for uh, bubbles, and it's kind of like like when the water comes over them and goes back. You look for bubbles. It's just mm-hmm. like looking for sand um crabs. I think is what we called them. I don't know what they really are. <laughs> so. This crime actually took place in the city of San Luis Obispo, which was about uh, 10 minutes north of Pismo. The city is best known for the university located there, California Polytechnic State University, but we called it Cal... I have heard of that. And and it's it's a really good school. We called it Cal Poly because that's easier. So you'll hear me say that. And you'll also hear me call San Luis Obispo slow because it's just easier. (laughs) It's the California way. You got to abbreviate everything. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So um, for those who don't really know where the area is, we were basically, we are still, I guess they still are. I'm not, but right smack in the middle. Well, maybe a little bit 
closer to LA, I think, but almost in the middle of LA and San Francisco on the coast. A lot of people have heard of Santa Barbara, and I was like an hour north of that, so that's the area. This case took place in 98, which would have made me almost 16, and I was a sophomore. I really remember the case because I if I remember correctly, they played the trials on like Access TV, you know, and I like watched them. I was so obsessed with it. And I, I want to say that was one of the first cases that really got me into true crime. So I've been dying to do this case. <laughs> I feel so special now. Like you came here for me <laughs> to tell me one of your, your true crime starter yeah, ca- cases <laughs> from the home hometown too <laughs> the home hometown i was actually born in san luis obispo city the hospital's not there anymore <laughs> that old but it's that whole area where i lived is a lot different from what i live where i live now you know there's a lot of crime in little rock and uh, there's murders almost every day you know maybe not every day but you know all the yeah. time and you don't always hear about him. Well, there, if something, someone was missing or if someone was murdered, it was like huge news. So it was a lot different. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why I was drawn into it because it like became a huge deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it was November of 98. 21-year-old Rachel Newhouse was a Cal Poly student and she was downtown they had a little downtown area where everyone hung out. Um, she was downtown at a restaurant and bra- mm-hmm. bar, excuse me, restaurant and bar with her friends. Something happened. She was a little intoxicated and a f- they got into like a fight. So she left. She took off walking by herself and lived, I know, and lived. But, you know, you also have to remember there wasn't things like Uber and stuff. We're so lucky to have that. There was cabs, yeah. but people were... A college student, you can afford Mm-mm. it. I guess her friends didn't go after her. I think about if that were to happen, I would have went after my friend. But I, I definitely am not going to blame anyone, you know. But they let her go, so she started walking. I think it was two miles or around there by herself and intoxicated. She had to cross over this bridge they called the jennifer jennifer street bridge to get to her house and um like it connected the railroad the big railroad station like where you could take the train into town and stuff and then downtown in the neighborhood if someone was watching her they would know she's about to walk on the bridge um she was really popular Uh, everyone who described her said she was fun athletic um very responsible like that was the number one thing that everyone said was she was super responsible and i know you hear that a lot in true crime cases like oh they never missed a day of work well that i guess that's how usually you know they're found missing because those people normally don't miss she was one of them i know like you think that like, think of how many people in your life are like that, though. There are a ton of people like yeah. that. Um, I mean, I, I try to be that person because you always want someone to know when you go missing. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It's, I guess, you know, it's a really good thing because if something happens, you know, they'll be able to know something's wrong. It won't stop it, but she was definitely one of them. She never missed class. She never missed work. She even kept in touch with her roommate, like, if she was going to be home late, almost like, you know, you would do with your mm-hmm. mom. But she did that with her roommate, so. Oh, I did that with my roommate. That's a good thing to do. That's a very good thing. Well, you know, especially if you're a female. You... Yeah. And that's that's how Rachel was. She was, you know, anytime she wasn't going to be home. Well, her roommate, when she didn't show up that night, her roommate immediately 
started calling, you know, her mom and um, they decided to contact the San Luis Obispo Police Department because it was so rare for her to not show up. That next day, they automatically started, you know, they put out a missing person and started investigating of where she could be. Wait, you mean the police did not do the standard, (laughs) she's a runaway? I know, it's really shocking. (gasps) It might have something to do with the fact that in 96... We had a college girl missing, Mm. Kristen Smart. She's still missing. No, she's never been found. Like, all the locals know what happened, but she's never been found. That was a huge deal. Wait, you said all the locals know what happened. Is that, that like, everyone knows really what happened, but they can't prove anything? Yeah, basically. And they, they, like, they even know. Like, they followed this guy. It was some guy, the last guy she was with. And they followed him trying to convict. They've tried, and they can't find the body, first of all. So that's, like the number one thing that's against them. And so that was a really big deal. And then two years later, another college student. So I think that might have a lot to do with why they immediately started Mm -hmm. looking into it. They said she lived a really low risk lifestyle. So I guess it was very rare for her to be missing. (laughs) I wonder what kind of risk style I live. (laughs) Don't judge people's lifestyles unless it's harming them or other people. (laughs) I wonder what that means exactly. But that that was word for word, I think. Um, they did a bunch of different um, shows. I think it was Buried in the Backyard was one of them. And I think that's what they said. I, and I had to write it down because I was like, what? Anyways. <laughs> it was actually pretty rare for her to even, like, try and walk home. I'm really, I'm just disappointed someone didn't go after her. But um, the police decided to go her route that she went to get home. And as soon as they got up to the bridge, they took about 10 steps and noticed a large pool of blood. Oh, God, no. Like, they're, it's not even like, they were like, okay, we're on this. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, like, that's a lot. Yeah. Now, they did say it wasn't so much that someone was murdered there. They could tell someone wasn't murdered there. But it was enough that they knew someone was probably beaten and taken somewhere, you know? Someone was assaulted. Yeah. Or like knocked unconscious. Oh, yeah. It's not a paper cut, yeah, right? But it's not. It's not a. It's not a bunch of. Sti- it's not a stabbing or like gunshot. Got yeah. it. They, they said it appeared as if it looked like someone was, you know, knocked out and then picked up, and because it just stopped. Mm. That's just interesting that they could figure that out. Like probably because there was like a bunch of blood, and then like if you knock someone out, your head. People don't realize like your head bleeds a lot. Because there's so many blood vessels, which someone, I forget where, someone was telling me that's why you blush. It's because there's all the blood vessels in your face. That makes sense. And so that's why if you get a cut on your face, it takes a while to clot because there's a lot of blood. And so it probably, like, there's probably drops, but it wasn't, like, a lot. And so it was real minimal. And that's what they said. They said there was, like, a a pool of it, but it wasn't, like, a huge, you know, pool, like someone was shot or something. And then there was some drips, and then it just stopped. So they could, you know, tell the way. And being cops and investigators, I mean, you're going to, these scenarios probably just go through your brain at all times. Or you've done enough training where you've, mm-hmm. like, they've shown you, like, hey, this is, da, 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 da. like, people don't realize cops are, like, public service people or government people are constantly in oh, training. Yeah. You can imagine that the policies are always probably changing too. I mean, so much. I'm, I was, I was really impressed with once I went back to this case and read, you know, all the details, I was really impressed by the work that they did on it. So they sent the blood work. They took 
a sample of the blood work and they sent it off to the crime lab um, to be tested to see if it would match Rachel's. I think they said they took some from her mom and her dad and they would be able to tell that way. It came. That's really yeah. smart. And at the uh, and this isn't even when like eventually the FBI gets involved and they haven't even got involved yet. So they just were on it right away. And I do remember it because it shook the community like females didn't want to leave the house, you know. And in a college town, it was scary. So the blood work came back. It was, um, this happened in November, and the blood work came back the next month in, in December. And Oh, they probably put a rush on yeah, that. Yeah, and, they, and it, they confirmed it was her. Um, it was her blood. Uh, so at that point, her family, the governor at the time, which was Pete Wilson, and L.A. baseball player Jim Edmonds, I don't watch baseball, so I don't know who that is. But they all pitched in and offered an award, a, a reward of one hundred and ten thousand dollars for anyone who has information. They they eventually brought in the FBI, and the FBI brought in some, you know, state of the art software to help them with all the leads that were coming in from the public. So they were getting a lot of leads, but just. No, nothing led anywhere. But they continued searching for her and everything for a couple months. The new year came around, and then in March, the San Luis PD got a call from a mother stating that she can't get in touch with her college-age student, which is a um, a female as well. I know. Yeah, so immediately, you know, it's going to spark just chaos all over, and so this, her name was Andrea Crawford. She was from Fresno, which is about two hours into the valley from, from Pismo around that area. But she came to San Luis to go to college eventually at Cal Poly, but she started at the two-year college Cuesta. And that's where she was when this happened. She wanted to be an architect and she was also a low-key, just did her schoolwork worked. She had a boyfriend, you know, she was really close with her mom, but she didn't go out and party or anything like that. So he got low risk victim. Yeah. So it's really opportunity. Yeah, I think so. I think there was a lot of stalking involved. And I, I tend mm -hmm. to think that they would want to stalk someone who's more low key because you won't have a lot of visitors or you know what I mean? Yeah. But she did have a boyfriend. And that night before she went missing, she called him and asked him if he wanted to come over and watch South Park. But he had an assignment due, so he declined. And sadly, like... That's a good student. I mean, he probably feels horrible, but he, good student. He blamed himself for years and years. And that, that just breaks my heart because I hate it. I hate hearing when people blame themselves. Like, you did nothing wrong. You know what I mean? No, it's... That's always hard because, like, how would he, how would you know? Exactly. How would you know that would be the night? Like, and if he showed up, it might have not been that night, but the next night or, like, It would have been a night he, he couldn't be up. there. It wasn't that. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. I think he finally came to terms years and years and years afterwards, but um, it did eat at him for, like, a long time. He was quoted in a article. He said that, she had a really good sense of humor and was kind of one of the guys. He says she could hang out with the guys. Who knows? Take the teasing. Give it right back to him. <laughs> so she sounds like she was, you know, down to earth, just fun, sweet person. Um, her and her mom were super close. They talked every single day and every single night. When her mom didn't hear from her, she knew something was wrong. Oh, yeah. The um, 
the San Luis Police Department went to her house for a home welfare check, and they didn't get any response, so they entered, they just said that they entered the home. I think that someone showed up to help let them in, and they started looking around. Go ahead. Which a home welfare check is like, if you're ever concerned about someone, like they might hurt themselves, or you have like they're normally really talkative, and you haven't heard from them, and you can't get a hold of them. That's a like call non emergency. Mm-hmm. You just say, "Hey, I'd like to request a home." Like I'm just concerned for their safety. They're like like they are. They're normally pretty responsive. They haven't been talking. It's absolutely. It's just a good thing to know. And when they showed up, her car was there. But she wasn't responding. You know know what I mean? So, like, everyone who they talked to who was reporting this, I mean, the police knew that this was a serious issue. I wish that would go on all the time in every case. But I guess one thing we should also remember is this was a town that doesn't have a lot of crime. So, I'm sure that it's a lot different. You know, it is. It's a lot different and bigger. Resource-based. They looked around her house, and they didn't find anything that looked like there was a break-in or anything like that until they went into her bathroom. When they went into the bathroom is where they found the only window in the house that was unlocked. And it was one of those really small, you know, like, um, I don't know, like two feet or whatever, and long windows Mm -hmm. that... You would think no one could get through unless you're, like, really skinny. But that was the only window open, and they could tell that someone had jumped in, like, climbed in. They they said they also could tell that whoever was in there attacked her when she came in. Like, it was, you know, you could tell there was a big struggle. So, basically, he probably went in diagonally, because that's, like, your best bet. Got in there. She probably heard something. Mm-hmm. Came in. He attacked her. Well, and it... It says, um, so the boyfriend said she always locks her windows, always locks her doors. She's in Fresno. There's a lot. Fresno is a a city with a lot of crime. And so I'm sure that's maybe why she did it. I don't know. I'm not dissing Fresno. There's just a lot of crime there. There's gangs. But, um, (laughs) so she always locks everything, you know? And he said, it's a good policy. Check your shit. Or especially if you're a female by yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. I know people were worried for me because I have like two window air conditioning units and they're like, oh, someone can break in that way. I'm like, they got to break the goddamn window. Like you're not moving. Yeah. It's an old building. So the wood, it's all swollen into place. Like you're not like gently lifting shit. Uh -uh. You wouldn't even be able to do that with, like the newer houses, it would be hard to do. Well, my landlord, if I remember correctly, told me, she sent me a text. She goes, we got your AC unit in, in your bedroom. We had to use a car jack to get the window open. I don't think anyone's coming in. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, like, I'm going to hear them first. I'm going to be that person. They're going to be like, she pretty much made it the hardest fucking thing for this person to get her. They're going to have to crash that would be it my, open. <laughs> My dateline would be like, she lit up a room and made it really fucking hard for that person to murder her. I love it. Goals. Yes. <laughs> the boyfriend told them, he said, you know, um, she has a cat or she just had gotten a new kitten and it was sick. So she was having it. She, so she was having it sleep in the bathroom. And she left the window open mm-hmm. for air to come in. And what happened was she heard something, him coming in. So she went to check on the mm-hmm. cat, and that's when he attacked her. Dick move. Yeah. Dick move. 
They, um, so once they saw that, they kind of did a more thorough search. They found specific things that were missing. Like her mom had come down because it was like a two hour drive. Her mom Mm -hmm. had came there and and was helping him go through the house. And, um, they found that she was missing CDs, one pillowcase. So like one pillow was like there without its case on it and an eight ball keychain that's usually attached to her car keys but the car keys were there and the keychain was gone weird she pointed that out to them because that was exactly weird and um they kind of knew at that point that most likely they took it as a trophy fuck that so um so once they you know once they searched the house and realized that that was missing and there was a struggle and she obviously was kidnapped um the search efforts just went into overdrive um they were they said they were working like 24 hours just calls coming in searching areas (laughs) they checked on every single lead that came in um the area has never seen a manhunt like like they had at that point it was it was really crazy um and scary because no one wanted to leave their house. Yeah, because I mean, the first girl was just walking on the bridge. The second per- girl was in her own house. Terrifying. Like, oh, I, that's like probably one of the scariest thoughts is someone breaking into your house when you're alone. You know, there was news coverage everywhere. It was in the newspaper. There was this parole officer from the area that was watching the news, and he was hearing the details of both of the, you know, what what they knew the details and he thought he just thought this sounds exactly like one of my parolees that's a good person right? he's like mm. this guy is like that alarm bells like, exactly like this guy is a freaking hero because i honestly i i'm i'm sure they would have a maybe eventually like dna or something would have came up because he was clearly sloppy but the fact that this is how they <laughs> caught him is insane to me. Um, now, don't be sloppy with your DNA. No, be sloppy, please. No. <laughs> um, I can't help it. My hair is left everywhere. Right, mine too. It breaks off everywhere. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the parole officer, he he had met Krebs in uh, 98. So it was a year before because this was ni- or 97 because this was a year before. Uh, this happened in 98. He met him in 97. Rex had just gotten out of prison. He was sentenced to 20 years, but only had to serve half. She's going to keep my mouth shut on that. Special. Yeah. Uh, in 1987, he broke into the home of a woman in Oceano, which is next to Pismo Beach. So it's south, a little bit more. And he violently raped her, left her there. He did not kill her, though. She was alive. Um, and before he left, he looked at her and said, have a nice day. Oh, that one got to me. I was like, mm. So he didn't get caught for that yet. He broke into another woman's home in Arroyo Grande, which is right next to, you know, we called it the five cities. There's all these little cities. Um mm-hmm. He broke into her house and he assaulted her and was going to rape her, but she broke free. This led to his arrest. I don't know the details on that because I didn't, you know, see those. But this led to his arrest. He got 20 years and had to serve 10 for rape, for sexual assault. I mean, 20 years is pretty good for that. If they ha- if they served it. it. But you have to think, Kel, like, we have such a mass incarceration problem that, unfortunately, yep. we can't. 
there's solutions to this, but we're not going to talk <laughs> nope. about that. It would go down a deep tangent, which we know both of us have received those comments on yep. reviews. Please, please leave us kind reviews if you enjoy this collective. If you like Nikki T on here, go over and give her nice reviews on Strictly Homicide. <laughs> hey, yes, thank you. And when I release this on my podcast, people, I am doing a collaboration. This is different. I'm just, and it's California, so if you don't like it, turn it off. I'll be back. <laughs> that's that's how you'll intro the episode. If you don't like it, turn I it off. I should change my intro to that. <laughs> so <laughs> he was released from prison in 1997. He moved to Atascadero, which is, I know, are you loving all these names? <laughs> it's, it's just a geographer's dream. So the first place he lived was Atascadero, north of San Luis Obispo, the city. And he did register as a sex offender like he's supposed to. And his parole officer said that he actually was um, shockingly <laughs> a good parolee. I don't know. Is that even a thing? But he said he got a job immediately, got an apartment immediately, completed all his drug screenings, registered at, I mean, he was impressed and his, everyone, his employer, and then he had a girlfriend he, that he got once he got out of prison. And they all were like, no, he's changed. He's a really good person. You know, like they really thought he changed. Uh, I mean, that just is really sad that we have to say he was a really good parolee and like, that's not the standard. Exactly. It really breaks your heart to think about that. Or did he just learn how to be a better criminal in prison? He goes, you know what? I got to look like I'm really good at this. Well, and you never know. You, you'll you find out eventually that it was that he was just became a better, well, he thought became a better criminal. But there are people who do change. You know what I mean? It, yes. But you're never going to know until, sadly, until they slip up. But that doesn't mean you should never trust anyone. No. But, I mean, he, so he meet. He's 31 at 97 when he gets out and he meets his girlfriend. Her name was Roz, R-O-Z. Um, like it? <laughs> Rex and Roz. Oh, I, even, I, <laughs> I love it. That sounds, it sounds so Australian for some reason. I must be listening to too much Bloody Murder. Must be that. <laughs> I feel like it. So yeah, she thought, I mean, she knew about his past. And um, I don't know how much she knew, but she said she knew he was in prison. And she thought that he was doing better and changed. She ends up getting pregnant. So, yeah. So she's pregnant during all this because this is still like, this is um, getting closer to whenever this happened. But, you know, so, yeah, she was pregnant. And then that towards the end of 97, almost 98. It said he was 32, and um, he got into a bar fight, which hospitalized him for days. Uh, he was knocked unconscious and was almost like in a coma, like a, I guess a medically induced coma. I think he had something happen to his brain. and Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Brain, brain mm-hmm. injuries really mess people yep. up. Oh, yes. Everyone who knew him, his friends, his girlfriend, his employer, said that he wasn't the same after that. You know, he he still wasn't, they said he still wasn't doing like, they thought he wasn't doing criminal activity, but but he wasn't the person that I guess he rehabilitated into when he got out or he was faking it. You know, I guess we'll never know. But his parole officer said he just went above and beyond and, and, you know, stayed Mm -hmm. on top of everything. And he said that because of his 
crimes because they were sexual assaults and um, break-ins, he would check on him more often. And um, eventually the word got out because, you know, they register as a sex offender, but people don't always check mm-hmm. the sites, I guess. And um, but once the word you don't think about. Yeah. It. And honestly, I'm just going to be honest, like it upsets me more. <laughs> almost like you just don't want to know that sounds awful mm-hmm. but it does it upsets me more to know if there's people in my area because you just don't know you know and his neighbors started finding out and he said he was pressured out of the area so that's when he moved down to san luis Obispo. he didn't move into the city the area he lived in is called davis canyon and it's kind of like on the way from San Luis to the beach. It's a wooded area. Okay. No cell phone service. Um, one, of the, one of the police officers interviewed said that his home was so far off the grid that his electricity came from batteries that were recharged by a paddle wheel in a creek. <laughs> Dang, that's pretty off the bean trail. I was like, okay, that is interesting. But it was, I know the area. I remember correctly, I think it's where people would drive to get high or to make out, (laughs) you know, those areas. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So the parole officer remembers reading his files from when he was arrested. And one of the things that really stuck out to him was the word struggle and that they knew that these women had a big struggle and that he would attack them like when they weren't expecting it. That was the one word that made him think that he could have had something to do with the girl's um, disappearance. Hmm. So he kind of took it upon himself and he went, visited Krebs whenever he was off of work and kind of looked around, you know, was kind of doing a what he called a parole checkup, but he knew he was looking for something specific. When he showed up, um, Rex was in like a, a back brace. You know, like when you hurt your back and you wear those black ones? Yeah. So he asked him, like, what'd you do? Why are you wearing that? (laughs) And he told the parole officer that he was gathering a pile of wood for, like, a fireplace. And he fell. Yeah. The way he made it sound was that he fell, like, into the pile of wood and tweaked his back. Well, he didn't have any, like, scratches on him or anything. So the officer was like, his story's bullshit. So he asked him to give him a urine sample. And then he went inside the house and was kind of just looking around. Um, so after he got the urine sample and kind of looked around his house and didn't see anything, he went back to the office and, you know, there was nothing he could do at that point. But he contacted the lead investigator and told him, of his suspicions the lead investigator really didn't take him serious so he didn't he didn't start looking into it right away which was kind of upsetting because like that's if you have a hunch like that that's crazy right so about four days later i think they finally decided to look into it so the department of justice sent some agents to the parole parole uh, parole officer's office and kind of got all the information from him that they needed. And then mm-hmm. they asked him, um, they asked him if they could go, you know, he could do another parole checkup and go check up on the house again. But this time they were going to go with him. Mm-hmm. So they showed up while he was there and they said that he was acting like relaxed and calm and that he wasn't like sweating or 
freaking out. One of the investigators noticed this wooden box and it, I guess it just looked out of place. And so they opened it and inside it was an eight ball keychain. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so the investigators knew about the keychain, but like the parole officer didn't because they didn't want that to be news. You know, they didn't want the media to release that. It was like their golden ticket where they knew as soon as they would find mm-hmm. it, that had to be the person who yeah. murdered her or who knew who murdered yeah. her. And I know that all cases have that information, you know, because I think people sometimes get irritated. Why didn't they tell the public? Well, there's reasons why, and it usually works out <laughs> for them. They continue searching. One of the, it was so weird. I couldn't really figure out where this, one of the investigators said she was looking through there and there was receipts with name, like this was creepy. There was receipts with women's names and descriptions on it um, from his work. He worked at a lumber company, but then she picked up one and it had her name on it. And like, I, I, at first I was like, what? That is, how would he know who she is? And she said she had covered a story and was on, like, the local news or something, and they interviewed her. So it's like he saw her and wrote her name down. I would... Oh, yeah, no, right? no, like, no, At first no, I was like, no, 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 come no, no. on, that's kind of, you know, but it, they they mm-hmm. took the piece of paper, they showed it on there, and it, mm-mm. That's, oh. She found it. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, how crazy is that? You're just, like, looking through, like, okay, this is bizarre, like... In your head, like the like the alarm bells, and you just being like, "Okay, red flag, red flag, red flag." Oh no! And what? No, and in the back no. of her mind, she's going, "We don't even have anything to really convict him on." Because yeah, I get that he had that keychain, but there's that's not solid proof, you know, not enough to arrest and hold someone. It's circumstantial, but it's not. So I can't to put imagine away. how fucking scared she was, because like. He was not going to go to jail that night. Other items that they found that they took into evidence other than the keychain and those receipts were CO2 cartridges mm-hmm. and BBs for a BB gun. Because he's on parole, they're not allowed to even have BB guns. or And, and it even said guns that look real, but they only found the BBs, not the gun. <laughs> so they couldn't arrest him on that either yet so you can't have baby guns you can't probably have paintball guns which is why i think they took the co2s yeah those are function off of co2 so they couldn't take him in and the parole officer knew that he couldn't you know um he went he said he went home that night and he just couldn't sleep because he just he knew this was the guy um they went to his work the next day at the lumber car yard and they asked if they can search his work and uh, for the bb gun and to their surprise he just grabbed it under the counter and handed it to him when they asked oh this one gets me when they asked him why he had it there he said that when birds would come into the um store and go up to like the rafters he would shoot at him fucking asshole i mean really i get you don't want them there but that's not the solution i guess it's better than a lethal solution but still yes but oh it made me mad but you know me i'm like this i love animals are better than humans <laughs> just, just kidding for the most part mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so um they had him at that point for to arrest him though you know they still haven't even mentioned the girls to him he has no idea you know what i mean that they even think he's i'm sure he thinks 
you know, but they haven't said anything. So the parole officer was quoted saying, in the back seat, he started getting visually emotional, which took me back to the 87 probation report. When he confessed to the officer, he noted he started getting very emotional and sobbing. So... Yeah, he he witnessed that. I guess when he gets caught, he gets real emotional, or I don't know if he has a conscience, maybe. Just <laughs> <laughs> to say. So they take him in, book him into jail, <clears throat> and then they go back to his house to continue searching. Underneath the house, they find what they called a jump seat. <clears throat> I've never used that term, but I guess it's the seats you take out of like a truck or a van. You know the. Oh, yeah. okay. They found. Yeah, it's like just um, like some like I know minivans you yeah. can take an extra seat out. Um, I think in trucks sometimes they're just like the bench seats so you just put it up so it's like, oh, in case you need someone there, there's like an extra yeah, seat. So- it's not normally there, but then so it was out mm-hmm. of his truck. It was one out of his truck, but it was like stuffed under the house. So of course they pulled it out, and they said that it was obvious that someone tried to clean it. But there was some blood on it that they could take a sample of. So they took the sample and sent it to the crime lab. Since he was in prison already because of um, violating his parole or jail, I don't know if he went to the prison yet, but um, they decided to go in there and actually question him about the murders now. So they contacted this guy, Larry Hobson, who was described as the best criminal interviewer with a reputation of the man to call when trying to get a confession. Take that how you want. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm a little stitious. <laughs> only because we're like, not quite superstitious, but just a little. Only because we we listen to true crime. <laughs> so we are always stitious. Yes, yes that's true. <laughs> At this point, they knew it was him, right? Um, and they knew mm-hmm. they needed a confession, or at least to be able to get close to one. But they didn't want him to request a lawyer, so they. You know, you have to keep, like, a certain level, which I can't even imagine. That would be hard. I'd be the one, like, screaming, you fucker! <laughs> but Hobson just was patient and started befriending him, almost. Um, he knew that he wasn't going to get any kind of confession out of him at that point. So what he decided to do was he told him... Do you want, well, since you have been involved in those kind of crimes in the past, do you want to be our informant? They had no, like, you know, they weren't going to make him an informant. But this made him trust Hobson. So, you know, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll work for you. I'll see what I can find out. Um, he kept coming back to the jail and spending time with him, trying to gain his trust, thinking that that's, you know, Probably one of the best routes to go to get him to confess. So in the meantime, the blood from the jump seat comes back and it matches Rachel's. So this Uh-oh. this is April 21st. Um, whenever that comes back, I th- is it 99? Yeah, because it was November 98. So it's uh, April 21st, 1999. It comes back as hers. So Hobson drove right down to the jail, brought him into the interrogation room, and immediately confronted him with the DNA results. Um, the mm-hmm. confess the interrogation can be found the interrogation can be found on YouTube too. Um okay. I don't know if it I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched it on one of the shows, so um they can probably see a lot more on YouTube though. So mm-hmm. he, you know, sat him down, told him we have DNA. Immediately Rex 
demeanor changed and he like got into a fetal position almost and like would not talk to anyone like totally just shut down so at this point Hobson thought crap you know he's gonna ask for a lawyer and um so he sent him Mm -hmm. back to his jail cell he knew he wasn't gonna get anything out of him at that point and then left let Krebs kind of think about it all night I guess came back the next day and he actually agreed to talk to him at this point oh interesting like that works it kind of let him sit with i i I guess that's why this guy is called the best one out there um (laughs) he just adapts to the situation he's like well you don't look like you're gonna talk so and just i'm sure he educates himself and has done it so you know they they listed a couple Mm -hmm. big crimes from the area that he was able to get confessions out of i didn't write them down but they weren't ones i knew so i didn't know i probably could figure it out but (laughs) so he looked at Krebs and he said are the girls alive and he just went no so that's when he confessed to kidnapping them raping them torturing them and then murdering them no yes now they didn't go into details about that and so I'm not going to and I try not to go into details I'm not I don't like that stuff yeah it kind of respects the victims a a little bit yeah and no one needs to know those details, so. And murdering, well, he confessed to murdering one of them. So, yeah. <laughs> he murdered both of them, though, but that's what he confessed to. He confessed to one, but there are two missing. So what he says happened with Rachel was that he was driving around and he was drunk because he has an alcohol problem. Alcoholic. He saw Rachel walking. He noticed she was stumbling. He knew she had to go on the Jennifer Bridge. So he parked his car or his truck, um, put on a mask from like the Scream mask. You know, the movie Scream. Yeah. I'm just like, why you have that in your car? Exactly. Uh, granted, you're now you're, one, you're admitting to drunk driving and two, now you're admitting to drunk murdering. Yes. There's a lot of questions. And why do you have that mask in your car? One of them. Yeah, that's really number one. It was no, I guess it was November, so I could see him using Halloween as an excuse, but he didn't have a kid. You know why I was there. Yeah. He was into screenplay? Yeah. There we go. (laughs) I hate myself for that, too. (laughs) So he puts it on and walks up on the bridge and hides. He waits for her to walk up there, and as soon as she gets close to him, he jumps out and attacks her and um he said he hit her with his fist in the head like a bunch of times that and it knocked her out and that's when he carried her so that's where the blood had came from not liking this at all and it, it, knowing that he did time and then this happened the only thing that makes me think there might not be other victims out there from after he ret- got out of prison is because there wasn't that much time it was literally like a year so you know. Yeah, and you said like he got hit in the head, and so like that he could have been like maintaining it, better at maintaining it, and then that trigger is just gone. And he lost it, you know, something. But it was always there in him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He said that he put her in the truck, took her to an abandoned house out by his house, so it's out in that wooded area. Yeah. He said he had tied her up, he hog tied her, sexually assaulted her, and then left her there tied up oh no honey he says supposedly he returned and that she tried to get free and ended up suffocating the investigators don't believe that 
um, they doubt it. And I, I assume that's probably off of autopsy and everything. Yeah. And, um, cause they're not going to go into detail, but they say it said the investigators mm-hmm. doubted this. So he took her, um, and Bill are dug a shallow grave about maybe 20 feet from his house and buried her there. So then he tells the detective that he was actually stalking Audrey, Audrea, Andrea, it's Andrea. They spell it weird. Andrea Crawford. He said that he stalked her for, um, he said a couple days, but it sounds to me like it was a while because he had like a whole plan. He said in that day, liking this less, uh, but I'm glad he's off the streets. <laughs> um, yes. He said he finally decided that it was the day he wanted to break in, climbed through a tree, climbed up a tree through that window. I saw a picture of him and he seems buff. So I, I don't know how, but he's like, I think they said he was like five one. Maybe, I think it was, or maybe that was when he was 16, but he was a little per, little guy i guess but i thought he was buff he got in through that window somehow he might have been stocky maybe and you never know he could have done feet first he got in well enough that i don't think it was the first time he's done it (laughs) that's really even more creepy right now i'm gonna check my apartment three times before i go to sleep thank you sorry payback no i'm just kidding So, um, so he admitted he went through the window and he said when he came into the house, he kind of fell and that's when she got up and went in there and he blitz attacked her. He knocked her. What about the cat? Uh, I know. Nothing was ever said. I don't think he ever did anything to the cat. Thank goodness. Um, well, no, I don't think he should have done anything to anyone, but, um, so he knocks her out, puts the pillowcase over her head, puts her in the truck and drives her out to his house. I guess that's when he saw the keychain and took the, I don't know why he took the car keys off, but whatever, took the car keys off and took the keychain. Maybe because he thought they couldn't trace it back. It seems like he learned from the first one too, where he like, oh, I got like the first one was like, oh, I just saw her and maybe he had seen her around and he didn't know her name and he just took her. This one, like he probably was stalking her for a couple Mm -hmm. weeks. And then the pillowcase was kind of like, oh, it's kind of easier to get away with stuff then. And he, he knew that he messed up before leaving um, Charles of Blood because they did announce that, like, in the media that they had blood. So uh, he takes her to his house this time, and um, he rapes her. And then he says he goes into the living room to drink more whiskey. And she was able to break free and started taking off running. And that's when he saw her and stopped her. Her mom said she wore glasses or contacts, and if she didn't have them in, she couldn't mm-hmm. see for shit and so that's probably what happened because she didn't have them with her mm-hmm. he said when he grabbed her that's when he strangled her he um uh, oh i know and they were really pretty girls too he said that it doesn't matter well, either no, way yeah, but it's just still like, really depressing and it's they had i just hate when people have their whole life ahead of them and people take yeah. it away so he said he dug a another shallow grave and buried her there and he said that's when he realized that he was supposed to go pick up his pregnant girlfriend from work so he did that bringing her home and they literally spent like the weekend at his house only like 20 feet from where he buried like it's that poor woman i can't imagine knowing i'm sorry like okay i get done murdering someone did he like clean up the house like bury her in the backyard oh, I th- yeah and I, then- I think so i think they just made it sound 
I, w- I think they wanted to point out that. Like, it was, like, within the hour of him, like, murdering her, he had to go pick her up. And I he don't probably, think like, there was any blood because he strangled her, so. That's true. But if she if she struggled, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, I just feel so bad for the girlfriend. I mean, she didn't know, you know. No. They asked him if he would take them to the bodies, and so he did. He... <sighs> He pled not guilty, and this I really didn't understand. And I, California was harder to try and look up court papers. I know how to look them up here in Arkansas, but it was, I didn't know how to figure it out there. But um, he pled not guilty, and I don't understand that. I guess maybe he said it was a false confession. I don't know, because he took them out there. Whatever. People are crazy. Um, yeah. But they played the video confession and, you know, showed the evidence and spoke about how he took them to the bodies. And, of course, they found him. Uh, guilty. So during his uh, sentencing trial, they tried to bring up his past mm-hmm. as to why he committed these crimes, which I think happens a lot. And I hear here in Arkansas on those death penalty cases, they always try and bring that up. But even though he tried to bring up how horrible his childhood was, they it didn't change anything. They gave him the death penalty. Um, and he's still on death row. And I think the governor of California, like, did some, I don't think he's executing anyone. I, I haven't been keeping up with the news there, but there's something going <laughs> there's on. There's a, is it, like something, yeah, like there, there's a stay on executions. Yeah. So I think they're going to go away from it. Like every state, they're having trouble getting hold of the drugs. Blah, blah, blah. So I think really the world is telling the U.S., hey, stop doing that. So you can see, I just did that, like motion of like the hand motion of like no like cut it out and it, there's just too many errors but I, I've definitely stated uh, talked about because I did the execution series and that's a hard one for me I don't know I I have conflicting views on that and that one's one I, I don't think I'll ever just firmly believe something because it's such a hard I can't imagine having that happen to someone I love you know they gave him the death penalty and he's still on death row and they when they did that, they specifically interviewed, like, uh, the family members of the girls because they he's one of the most, you know, popular, I don't know if that's the word, people still on death row there. And sadly, the families are having a really hard time with it. They feel like it was kind of like a punch in the gut for them and that justice wasn't served. Mm-hmm. I guess, see, that's where it's hard for me. I can see how they can think that justice is being served because he is spending life in prison, you know? Yeah. When you say he's most popular, do you mean he gets, like, a lot of letters? Oh, like, no, like no. That kind of not stuff? like that. Like, one of the known. I guess in our area. I should say oh. in our area because there's not a lot of people on death row from our area. So, like, um, you know, when that happened, the, our local newspapers pa- pe- there don't know. He's not like, what's his name? Scott? The other California? Pete. Scott Peterson. Peterson? Okay. Girls are, like, obsessed with him. He's so gross. That's I, like, looked up a picture of him. And he's the like, Rex guy? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's like, <laughs> I don't know, this picture on Murderpedia is very interesting. <laughs> it's, oh, there's a photo Well, gallery. do you see why I say he looks real buffed up? He's got, like, a shaved head. Yeah, he's, like, head. a stocky yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, like, a stocky dude. Mm-hmm. His mustache is ridiculous, is though. <laughs> he is, he's... He's like a f- almost full width mustache, which is very rare. He these reminds days. me of one of those. And I'm not even. This isn't even me cracking a joke. This is what he reminds me of. You know, like an old cartoon or something. The guys who would lift the dumbbells in their little like spandex suits. 
Yes. With the shaved head and the mustache. Yes. Exactly what he looks like. I can see that. Yeah, no, that's definitely Every it. Every time I see him. I was trying to. <laughs> it's really just the one yeah, that picture. Because I think he looks different than the other really one. It really cements it. Like, it's, it's like from the 90s. It's like very 90s. <laughs> yeah, the, the caption on Murderpedia is, Rex Krebs poses, poses for his father in between killing two college girls. And that was brought up a lot. I really didn't go into his past because he did have a shitty past, but like a lot of people have a shitty past and they don't, you know what I mean? So I didn't want to focus on yeah. his prior life, but he did live with abusive parents his whole life, um, was an outcast described in school. He, he had trouble with school. But he immediately started getting in trouble at, like, a young age. I think, like, at 10, it was. He ran away for the first time and, like, broke into a house. So, his parents really suck. A lot of people have shitty parents. I have shitty parents. Really shitty parents. And I, there's no way in hell I would ever hurt a person like that. So, but, um, so that's really it. I can say, leaving off on a good note, I know... Crawford's mother started like a college fund for a scholarship for one student and she got so much um, response from people donating money that she was able to increase it to multiple students. That was kind of her way of having um, her daughter's memory go on, you know, because she was really into school too, wanted to go far. So is are still accepting donations to that? I um, didn't check yet. But it was one of the last things I had read, and I was actually going to check on it. And if they were, I was going to share the link. So Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes, so that way if you do want to, you know, we listen to so much true crime, maybe give back a little bit to victims. I think it's awesome when families find a way like that to remember the victims in a positive light. So so I kind of got you back with that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little bit. That was bad. That was pretty bad. Um, thank you for coming on again. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you got to share your hometown murder. I am too, and um, I always have fun, so I'll come back anytime. Yeah. So, <laughs> go check out Strictly Homicide. Search it on everything. I think I've got your spiel down now. <laughs> Arkansas True Crime. She did an amazing series on the death penalty in Arkansas. I highly recommend it it's controversial in the way like is this legal is this not legal all the good bits um of the legal debate and i try and i definitely try and stay very biased i don't because i feel that way so i don't get political (laughs) i've been accused but i don't sorry we're just being snarky about (laughs) reviews like it's it's whatever um and yeah I think I maybe have my next one scheduled. I don't know. But be back next week for a new person. Yay, it won't be Nikki. It'll be great. (laughs) I mean, that would be fine too, but yay. Bye. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favorite podcatcher. Greetings. Do you want your mind bent? Your reality tested? Or how about becoming lost in the unknown? Let's talk aliens, conspiracy theories, 
and paranormal phenomena. My name is Brian, and I cover all this and more on the Rabbit Hole Wanderer podcast. Prepare yourselves passage to impossible and unexplainable things. You better buckle up. We must wake up and open our minds. Are you getting sick and tired of hearing about Ted Bundy, Maura Murray, the Golden State Killer, West Memphis 3? Check out Strictly Homicide Podcast, a true crime show that discusses cases out of the natural state. And even though it's Arkansas, we won't be covering the West Memphis 3 or the Boys on the Track anytime soon. So check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Podcoin, or basically wherever you listen to all your favorite shows. You can also find us on all social media platforms. And as Mr. T would say, I pity the fool that doesn't listen to Strictly Homicide. Domesticity. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.